what we started doing was really watching which products were sold together. You know, it might be this light with this mounting stand and this light accessory. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why they focused on international expansion very early in their business, how they manage cash flow when their cash is tied up in inventory, and how they use bundling to increase their average order value. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker. It's an easy way for any brick and mortar shop owners to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com slash signage. Today I'm joined by Riley Strickland from LoomCube. LoomCube offers high-end portable lighting for creators and communicators, and their products help their customers capture better content and look better on video. And was started in 2014 and based out of San Diego, California. Welcome, Riley. Great to be here. Yeah, so you started this business to offer a solution to a problem that you saw in the marketplace. What was the problem that you were seeing? Yeah, the founding group of the company uh, kicked off in 2014. The original concept was around creating portable lighting for primarily GoPro and iPhone users. Uh, we were really seeing those two devices lead the market in terms of content creation. Uh, GoPro, of course, being all the rage back then around their IPO and iPhone finally really getting great cameras built into their devices. And we saw an accessory uh, accessory market around GoPro as well as around iPhone in that photography realm, things like little clip-on lenses for your iPhone. And so the founding group, we had a history in the photography and video space, knew how important lighting was, and that currently on the market, there wasn't an offering of lighting for iPhone or GoPro to gap capture better footage. And so that was the original concept of LumCube, which came to life on Kickstarter. Awesome. So you you knew that in your background, the importance of, of lighting. How was it the Kickstarter campaign, or how did you guys know that that there were people out there that also understood that the value or the importance of lighting enough for them to purchase a product like this? So that's really where Kickstarter became our proof of concept. So we knew that in the core market of kind of the high end photographers, videographers, they vastly knew the majority. Uh, or the value of light. Uh, traditionally at that time though, lighting was a fairly expensive item. So you would go to the B&Hs of the world, the high-end places and spend hundreds of dollars on lighting, which ultimately was, you know, you'd carry it around in a big case, you'd have long cables, big batteries, and there wasn't a portable solution like ours. And so that was kind of the theory around it internally uh, amongst the founding group. And Kickstarter, we felt rather than going all in raising capital was a great platform to test that concept. And we ended up throwing it out on Kickstarter with you know a couple prototypes, a marketing video, and a goal of 56,000. And 30 days later, we had $229,000 raised thousands of orders pre-sold. And that really proved to us, wow, people understand this value and there is a demand out there for a product of this nature. That's amazing. So at the time that you were launches on Kickstarter, what, what was, what, what was, I guess, what was reality at that point? Did you already have a, a working prototype? What did you have in place when you launched this campaign? A working prototype would be a very generous way to put it. 
Um, we had about six units that at the time they were very expensive to make. The challenge with light overall is that it generates a lot of heat. So these kind of very rough prototypes would not last for more than a couple minutes at a time. Uh, so ultimately, you know, we got quite creative in the marketing side of things in the in the video and showing proof of concept. But ultimately, at scale, we knew we needed to solve a lot of those problems. But uh, yeah, we had about six prototypes. We were manufacturing them in Australia at the time, quite expensive place to do it. And uh, there certainly were many, many changes between the item that we advertised on Kickstarter and the final product that was delivered. Uh, you know, through that manufacturing experience, we found a lot of challenges with our original design and had to modify a number of times to really come out with a product that met the specs that we promised to our Kickstarter customers. Yeah. And, and, and the other way that I've seen or I've heard of other Kickstarter creators running into is that they'll discover more about how they should talk about or how should they, they should market their product or even the product features itself through a Kickstarter campaign just through the community. Did you, did you uncover any of those things? Or what were some changes that came into play through the course of a Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, we certainly learned a lot about what features we were advertising that the customer base valued most. And ultimately, we knew that when people were buying into the Kickstarter campaign, it wasn't necessarily like many other Kickstarters, the exact product that you see. It's more of a concept of saying, okay, for us, you know, whatever the product looks like in the Kickstarter video, ultimately what's going to come out is a high quality photo and video light that is not only Bluetooth uh, compatible, but also waterproof down to hundred feet. And so promising these list of specs. Now, like many first time entrepreneurs, which is which we what we were, we didn't have a background in manufacturing at scale. Uh, so that's where, you know, for us, one of the biggest learnings through that Kickstarter was really the cost analysis of understanding what is this going to cost per unit at scale to achieve these specs. And we had a couple prototypes that were were simple, but to give some scale, you know, we were probably about 80% underestimated the costs of the actual final production unit uh, comparatively to where we were early on in the Kickstarter. Got it. So what kind of issues did this, this cause then? So once the campaign ended, you, you raised over $229,000. What, what were the next steps in terms of turning this, this, this product, this, this promise of a product into reality? Well, we promised about a three month delivery timeline. So we ran the Kickstarter between November and December in that holiday period and promised to deliver by March. It ended up taking us 12 months to deliver. So as we went into mass production, what the challenge ended up being in particular around the unit was the first unit, uh, it was primarily that GoPro application light. So we needed, we knew we needed to match the specs of GoPro, which was, hey, allow our customers to surf with this, go diving and snorkeling with this. So it had to be waterproof. Now, the difference between a GoPro and a light, GoPro as a camera, you, know, you can put it in the waterproof GoPro case, which back then the GoPro Hero 4 was that way. Light, that was kind of the original concept around what we would do, have this light and have a little GoPro case. But through testing, light emits such a high amount of heat that when you do put it in an airtight environment that's very small like that, it was just burning out immediately and would actually burn a lot of the internal components, melt because of the no airflow in there. And so that is that was the major, major challenge that took months to figure out of how can we waterproof this thing top to bottom. So we ended up working with a watch manufacturer who made waterproof watches to help seal it and basically 
build the actual unit out of aluminum, which acted as its heat dissipation. And so a lot of those little things came up where not quite expected in the Kickstarter. It was more of a concept marketing. But then when you get down to the manufacturing specs, that's what started driving up the cost in terms of, okay, we have to meet these specs. We can't let the customer down here. But ultimately, if it's going to bring the cost from $14 a unit up to $22 a unit, you know, so be it. And that was something that we had had challenges with along the way. So not only manufacturing issues, but, you know, we were at the time working out of a garage. Uh, we had the Kickstarter revenue that was certainly funding the project, but we ended up having to go out and, and raise a little bit of seed capital as well during that time to make sure that we could fund that first run because so much cost was incurred in figuring out how to finalize the product. Mm. So 12 months, you mentioned that originally that the, the promise was three months to deliver. Well, how did the, the customers on there handle it? How, how did you make sure that you were communicating in the right way so that you wouldn't have a uprising on your hands? Forced to be very proactive. And that's what we learned is ultimately, you know, as in any project, if things aren't going to be matching the timeline that you promised, over communication and proactive communication. I'll tell you that was probably the most painful part of that process. Um, you know, Kickstarter at that time was kind of an earlier platform. It was quite big, but there it's a very outspoken crowd. So they do adopt early, which we're grateful for. And unfortunately through that timeline, as much as information we, uh, we tried to share, there's certainly the, uh, the element of people who, you know, assume that you just pocketed $230,000 and you each bought a Porsche and you're hanging around San Diego surfing every day. So you kind of have to battle that. And that's a tough one on the, on the heart, knowing how much you're putting in, you know, 90 hour weeks, long nights. And uh, ultimately we were very proud that by Christmas, the following year, 2015, we were able to deliver in full and deliver a much, much higher quality, better product than they even originally purchased. So we were thrilled about that. And you had mentioned that in order for you to be able to deliver on this, it wasn't enough just to have that, again, the $229,000 raised, you had to go out and raise seed capital right after the campaign. How easy was this to do now that you had the Kickstarter kind of success and, and demand to show for, for your, your business and your product? It was, it made all the difference. Um, you know, by no means was raising capital an easy thing to do, especially in the early stage, but had we not had the proof of concept that showed essentially two and a or quarter million dollars in a month, which you know allowed us to peel that out from a 12 month run rate to show, hey, we've got a you know two and a half to three million dollar a year business here. We just showed we could do a quarter million dollars in 30 days. That allowed a lot of proof of concept and uh, validation in the idea for people to invest. So we did uh, get a seed round from about nine people that came in and ultimately that was what truly allowed us to bring the product to market and then not only fulfill the kickstarter but place those additional orders in china which carry some pretty large minimum order quantities and then turn that into uh, recurring revenue business awesome now the, the manufacturing that was the kind of surprise right that that, that changed everything in terms of the, the the dynamics of 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 the the profit potential of the business so once you had recognized that there were under uh, underestimates on the the cost to to manufacturers at scale did you just have to kind of adjust the price point from there or were there ways to find ways to drive down the cost of manufacturing yeah, it uh, you know the original product was really we hoped to hit around the fifty or sixty dollar mark. Uh, we ended up coming to retail at the seventy nine dollar mark, so we did have to build that in. And uh, 
you know, it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't because the product was so advanced from what we had pre-sold on Kickstarter, it did two really great things. The people who bought it on Kickstarter around the $35 price point saw it as, wow, I really got such a great deal on this. You know, the product ended up being much better. And then when we did come to market, there were a lot of our retail partners and vendors and partners who, who really said, you should come out at $99.99, or $99.99, that this is a $99 product all day with the value you've packed in. And so we found that middle ground at the $79 price point, which we believed allowed for a little bit more low barrier to entry and, uh, and a little bit mass market opportunity to allow a larger group of people to come in. And so right out of the gate, we saw some pretty wild success in that first 12 months. Got it. Yeah. And and just to to touch on this a little more, you had mentioned to us that the way that you got into the marketplace was through a a wholesale business at first, selling into retailers like Best Buy, Apple stores. And you mentioned that 50% of the wholesale revenue or 50% of the revenue came from, from, from wholesale in the first year. Now tell us more about this. Like what, how was that I guess a possible from a, from a business that just kind of started from scratch and just had a crowdfunding campaign. Was it easy to get into these retailers? Uh, no, I wouldn't say easy. I mean, we did have, we had a history of some relationships from this category uh, with where the founding team was previously in their careers. We had relationships with some of these retailers previously on other products and then being able to show up at their doorstep with not only a quality product, but then, this Kickstarter campaign and the success and the PR that showed, hey, this isn't building and growing market. This is a product that is needed. It's different from anything else out out there. It did allow us to really gain some early traction and early success. Um, And as as you mentioned, it it actually, looking back on it, it was about over 70% of our revenue in year one came through the wholesale channel. So it was a, you know, at the time we were on Magento 1.0, we had a very basic website you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars a day at most. And so most of the focus was around going into the retail channel and making a splash. And, you know, without question at the time, because GoPro was the talk of the town IPO, uh, you know, 25, $30 million or 30 million cameras being sold every year. We were modeling a lot of our direction being a GoPro accessory off of the path that they were taking. And most of their business early on too, we saw going into that retail channel, you know, strategic retail partnerships in retail displays, paying to those retailers like Best Buy to build out displays. And so ultimately that was the early, early portion of our business, um, which although, you know, had a lot of traction and gained, uh, gain some validation for us, it causes a lot of issues, um, of course, because many of those, the larger the retail partner you get, the longer the payment terms are, the lower the margin is. And so it's certainly a given trade there. Yeah. So, I mean, that sounds like a pretty, pretty hefty investment to, to kind of get those, um, get that kind of, I guess, positioning inside those, those stores. How was that? Or did you start off smaller, just a couple of retailers within a, a big box store? Or how did you kind of roll into some of these, these relationships? Yeah. So 2016 was our first year in business. Uh, a lot of that revenue came from opening some strategic online retailers at the time and having small in-store placements. And then we spent a lot of focus building the international side of the business. So, you know, personally in 2016, I think I spent about 200 days, give or take traveling, uh, whether it was going to trade shows, going internationally, setting up distribution. So 
that's where a lot of that revenue came as well is the opening orders from our distribution channel, uh, which ultimately is very, very low margin, but setting up, you know, Germany, Australia, South Africa, England, J Japan, and having large distribution orders for representatives there trying to really build a global brand and have placements on the, the retail shelves there. So those partners of ours, people who were distributing the DJI drones, the GoPros, uh, the Sony cameras, they had relationships with a lot of retailers. So we would leverage that, you know, align with that distributor, sign a contract, and then they would help take us into that territory. Uh, so that was a lot of the first year's plan is build a couple strategic retail partnerships in the US, build the global business. And then in 2017 was when we went more towards the big box retailers and signed on both uh, Apple stores and Best Buy. Yeah, that, that's interesting that, that your approach is really to go a, as wide as possible, almost like to, 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 to the to the finish line for where a lot of businesses go. You started there, almost kind of worked your way backwards by going international first. What, what, what was the purpose of that? Why focusing on international so early in the business? You know, if I was looking back on it, um, I would have done it the reverse way. And I think we did it kind of the opposite, as you mentioned, most businesses build an online business and then slowly bolt on a few retailers and then scale internationally. For us at the time, this was all we knew. Um, Shopify was far from our vision at that point. It wasn't what it was today, for sure, at that, po at that point. And so for us as a couple individuals who coming from that industry and had a lot of connections in and knew how to play the retail game, we were, it was the fastest way for us to get the word out there. And, you know, in that first 12 months, believe it or not, it sounds crazy uh, considering what the world is today. But in 2016, we spent zero dollars on any paid media advertising, no Google search, no Facebook advertising. That was not something we didn't come from an e-commerce space or know much about that. We came from retail and wholesale. So once we got our hands on what our own product was, this Loom Cube and a number of the accessories, we took it to kind of for us, what was the low hanging fruit? Get these 10,000, 20,000, $50,000 orders from retailers or distributors and push the business through those channels. Um, looking back on it now, you know, there are products that fit that model and there are products that fit the direct to consumer model. Would have been thrilled to have taken a different approach back then because it did lead us into some real tight cash flow situations when you're scaling that quickly and you have to front the cash to build all the product, but then you've got to wait, you know, 30, 60, 90 days to get paid once you sell it to a retailer, you get put in a very tight cash flow position uh, versus obviously what most people love about Shopify and that you get the daily deposits to at least cash flow the business. Yeah, definitely want to talk about managing cash flow in a second. Now, you had mentioned that you're able to go after this low-hanging fruit with your with your connections and your experience in, in the retail space and you had relationships and you mentioned that there was this this huge GoPro wave at that time. But besides that, like, what do you find retailers and distributors care about when it comes to taking on a product, maybe specifically like, like an electronics product? Uh, the first thing, of course, is margin. So, you know, a retailer has very high cost. They've got to keep the lights on. They've got to pay the employees. So anything that is below their required margin, they're not even going to speak to you. And so that was something we learned early. You know, when we chose that $79 price point versus 99, that's where out of the gate seemed right. 
when you start getting into retail and you have to give 50% of your margin to a retailer or distributor, 50% of 80 is different than 50% of 100. So we would have loved to have that additional cash when you go the retail side. So building in that margin is the main thing because even if you have the world's best, next greatest product, if you can't meet their margin requirements, they can't work off of only a couple bucks per unit uh, or a couple percentage points per unit. And the second thing for us really was they're riding the trend. And so at the time, with every retailer just drooling to get their hands on a GoPro display so that they could bring people into their store who everybody wanted to buy GoPro and was going into retail. The fact that they had now an accessory that they could upsell to all of those GoPro users, a different story to tell. They, we basically, you know, in essence, rode the coattail of GoPro on a lot of that wave that first year. And so, you know, ultimately from a reverse engineer perspective, how we found most of our distribution was going on GoPro's website, looking at all of their international distributors, pulling contact information and calling them up. And so saying, we've got a product that pairs very well with what is now your hero product, this GoPro, and let's tell a story and let's combine them and bring them to retail shelves. And so at the time it did get a lot of interest because we were riding the trend. Fast forward about 18 months when GoPro was more of a lead weight on a lot of these retail shelves, we had to stop even using that term approaching retail because anything GoPro related was a negative. So margin requirements and then riding the trends is going to be a really main focus for success in retail. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, that that window, because like, like you're saying today, no one really talks about GoPro like they did, you know, five, six years ago. And it's reflecting the kind of products that you have displayed front and center on your website where you made that kind of transition into, uh, we'll get a bit about your, your additional product lines. But when that window was closing, how much lead time did you have on making the the kind of adjustments in terms of the the product lines and and even the marketing behind the business it was an ever-changing strategy i mean we always were watching the market and ultimately had to really keep our pulse on what was happening um fortunately we had a very small product that its mounting capability was a quarter 20 tripod thread. So the same thing you find on the end of selfie sticks or any tripod. And so at the time we were kind of positioning ourselves as the Swiss army knife of light. And so the light itself was very applicable to a lot of different scenarios. What changed was the mounting option. And so that really was what opened up a lot of our business to take it and pursue other avenues. And so primarily the lights would snap on a mount with a GoPro and be used to film and then we had a camera mount as well. So that same GoPro light could be mounted on top of a camera. And that's where we found a lot of success in, uh, in that photography videography realm. And then come towards the end of 2016, the major wave that came in was drones. And so that was when DJI launched their Phantom four, which was, you know, took the market by storm. You can now get great aerial photography. So we created a line of mounting bars for the drone. So you can take again that same original GoPro light, snap on some kind of leg mounts on that Phantom 4 drone, twist on your lights, and lo and behold, we've got a new line of products that we would call drone lighting. And so ultimately the light was the same. And so that was what allowed us to be very nimble where, you know, looking at it, hey, we want to sell or we want to buy and manufacture 50,000 lights this year. Because it was all the same light, we would then just move the volumes of mounts 
from one aspect to the other. So it allowed us to stay pretty nimble. Got it. Now you mentioned that you pay close attention to, to the market to be able to be nimble like this. Now, have there been like bets that that haven't panned out. Like you, you, you got the GoPro, you got the the kind of smartphone, um, drones. And I think lately more like video conferencing. Have there been bets that haven't worked out as well as you would have wanted? Absolutely, absolutely. So we took some swings around more of the outdoor market. Uh, you know, camping. Obviously, the, just the fact that the sun goes down every day and you're out there in the dark. We thought there might be a great option for us to really tackle kind of the new generation of headlamps. Uh, did not work out at all in terms of the success that we were hoping to find. There were some limitations around the product, you know, that market in particular, although we made a line of accessories for it, our runtime was much shorter than your average headlamp. And so we learned in that market that brightness was much less valued than actual length of runtime. You know, you want your light to be all night long versus very bright for about an hour or two. And so a similar situation in the dive light market. We know there's a lot of divers out there. They're very affluent. They spend a lot of money on gear. We tried to make a real big stamp in the dive light market. And although we had some minor successes, ultimately we learned that all of the dive business really is runs through retail channels. And those retail channels in the dive market required about 60% margin, which we just could not afford. And so purely from a margin basis, we had to clip that entire line and kind of fold that back in. So there was a couple of them out there and, uh, and we really just found that that content creator, photographer, videographer at that time was who was embracing us the most. They knew the value of light. And so we stayed on that path to achieve some early success. Mm. How do you know when to put a plug on like a, an experiment or a, a, you know, a, a bet like that? When do you know when to, what are you looking at or how do you determine, okay, you know, that, that we tried enough, let's pull back and try something else. You know, at the time earlier, it was a lot of gut check around let's spend a few weeks in the old school saying, dialing for dollars, calling retailers, calling these people and seeing what is their reaction. These kind of really super users of dive lights who are in the dive market or the outdoor camping uh, markets, enthusiasts, retailers, and really get their feedback. Um, so we valued that a lot. And you know, doing that for a few weeks, really banging our heads against the wall. It was mainly a gut check then. And that was certainly back then, 2016, 2017. Boy, do I wish we had the similar type of business now because for us now, we run top to bottom 100% of our business off of data and deep, deep dives on dashboards and metrics and success and financials. And so it makes it much easier, it's the beauty of Shopify, that we can put a product out there, we can look at target run rates, um, you know, our PDP page bounce rates. We can see how customers are engaging with it. We can run sample tests. And so really for us now in today's market is running data and just looking at here's a product that's successful. You know, here's a conversion rate. Here's a bounce rate on a page. Here's what we look at. And then if we introduce a new product and we see that same web traffic with an increased bounce rate and a much lower conversion rate, it tells us that either it's not appealing to our market, or maybe we don't have the right traffic there and we can make much quicker decisions with that data. So early on was, was kind of gut decision on just what do we think? And maybe let's pull the plug and focus on where we, we are seeing success. 
Yeah, you know, speaking of being able to ask yourself, is it the, the wrong audience, the wrong traffic, or just the not the right product? How do you make that call on whether it's, let's stick with the product, let's try to find a, a customer for it, or deciding, you know what, this product's not going to work regardless? Yeah, it's, uh, that's kind of the toughest question you have when you're sitting in this seat of, uh, of a business, kind of on the, the owner executive side, is do you bet the house? And do you keep pushing and swinging for the fences and think that you might hit a home run or do you pull back and do you kind of go for the bunt and say, let's wait for the next guy to come up. And in terms of a product example, so, uh, you know, the best analogy for example of that would be our video conference light. We launched that at CES in 2019. We were the first ones to do it. We did a partnership with Apple and that was probably the biggest flop in company history. Um, we bought in heavy because Apple believed in it. The market in early 2019 did not understand the value of lighting and video conferencing. And so we finished that year only selling 7% of the inventory that we bought in, in a 12 month period. Uh, you know, fast forward a year and a half from now, the world understands video conferencing and the importance of lighting and the other 93% of inventory sold in four weeks. And so, it really is based on the market that you kind of have to make those decisions of, do we think the market's going to start to understand this or where's the pain point? And I think you have to trust yourself. Are you, if you're doing all the right things, you're driving the right traffic, you're telling the right story via video, you're showing the value and the product's priced right. And it's still not selling. I think you got to take a little bit of a deeper look on, is it going to be successful? But at the end of the day, I think marketing comes into play majorly there. Cause if you got a great product and you know, when you show somebody, you get their first initial reaction and, and it's great, then it just becomes, maybe you're not getting the right eyeballs or you're not driving enough eyeballs to it. And that's your limitation, but the product is still a winner. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. I think one thing you said here, which is around, will the market understand it? You aren't saying, can I convince the market to get it? So you're, you aren't like pushing or trying to almost like convince or educate the market, you're looking for these opportunities where they kind of already get it? That's in the early stages. Yeah. You know, in that term, low hanging fruit, we were, we had a line of lighting. And so photographers, videographers, you know, action cam users, they were very used to buying accessories for those devices, whether it's, you know, a pole or a lens or a big light. So they understood, okay, here's a new accessory that I could buy for my device. When we took this lighting accessory to the, the mobile worker or the business crowd, I mean, I don't know about you, but at that point I had never bought any accessories for my laptop. You know, it was a, you buy it from Apple and it comes as is, and it just pretty much does the job. And so that's where that customer base wasn't, despite the major value that it provided on video calls, that customer base wasn't used to accessorizing that device. And so that's where we were able to see much, much higher uh, return rates on kind of the photo video realm and trying to really understand what is the customer behavior of our target customer and are they going to get this? And I think, you know, for me, what always I would always flash back to is you always hear about those stories of people really losing money on, you know, early cell phones back in the eighties and nineties and the markets just weren't ready for it. And of course, everybody's got one today, but, uh, it's interesting. So it's, is it the right time in that market? Does that customer understand it? Because the major thing for us or for any startup 
if you are going to bear the burden of educating an entire market on your solution, that's going to be a very expensive road. And it costs a lot of money to educate an entire market. But if you can get into a market where people are already buying a similar solution and you just happen to have a better one, if you can get in front of those eyeballs, much higher chance of success. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm, makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit more about the, the wholesale business and the, the kind of squeeze that you had mentioned about around managing cash flow. So tell us more about that. Like how did you kind of survive those periods, especially early on in your business where you are, you know, sitting, you know, 90 days out from uh, all this money that you spent on inventory that's already in the hands of the distributors or, or, or the retailers, but you haven't been paid yet. How did you manage that those times? Very challenging times. It put a, a lot of strain on the business, on the manufacturing lines, um, of course, on the advertising. You know, you don't have cash to drive the marketing. And so we had to go back a few times and raise additional capital. And ultimately, as much as a single sale was profitable, when you peel it across, you know, hey, we have $800,000 in inventory over in China that's being built. And we've got half a million dollars that we've shipped out to our customers. And we're here in the middle. We've put the cash out for the business. We haven't received the cash on the sales. That's where you get real, real tight. And of course, to scale a business, especially quickly, you gotta have people and you gotta make payroll. And so, you know, I can share numerous stories around us selling assets to make payroll during those times. We sold a, a trade show booth that we had bought for about 50 grand for $17,000 just to make payroll on a certain week before we knew some of our uh, AR was going to come in. So it put a big strain on the business and ultimately in, uh, in early 2018 led us to bring on kind of a major investor and shareholder and recapitalize the business top to bottom. And that was really when we made the turn to say, for this type of business to scale, we need to build it in more of a direct-to-consumer model that's a much more cash-friendly business. Makes sense. Now tell us about that transition. Once you made the decision to go from a wholesale business to direct-to-consumer, what was that transition period like? Uh, a little bit bumpy. So coming into 2018, about 70 to 75% of our business was through wholesale channels, the Apple, Best Buys, you know, online retailers, distribution, and only about 30% coming direct. And by the end of the year, we had actually balanced it about 50-50. Um, and just to kind of give some insight, now we're over 90% direct and 10% of the business is retail. So we really have been successful in that transition. But at that time, we were coming from Magento. We built an entire Shopify website, which was our first experience with Shopify, obviously made it much, much easier. And that was what enabled us with the, the switch to Shopify really made it a more friendly transition to start introducing the the paid media side of the fence, the Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising, because Shopify had such a friendly ecosystem for that. And so it really was about that time, May of 2018, we made the switch on the platform. And then June of 2018 was when we really issued our first budgets toward let's drive some traffic via some photo and video advertising on those platforms and start bringing in traffic directly versus relying on you know, Best Buy or Apple customers to see us on their shelves. So it took a, a number of months, mainly being that you have to lay out the investment for the website build, for the advertising. Um, but after about three or four months, we started seeing enough signs of success that we felt we were moving in the right direction and decided to keep it 
So what what uh what starts that sh- shift that balance from from wholesale to direct to consumer? Like what what moves the the lever the the needle? Is it is it uh the the driving of the traffic? Like is that where where you really start to make that shift from wholesale to to direct to, to direct to consumer? That was exactly it. So all of our all of our efforts, rather than going around building the brand really became focused on driving traffic to the website and converting that traffic. So high conversion metrics, really studying on making sure we would drive the right customer bases to the website and not only the website, but starting to really understand those paths and the funnels that the customers would go to and say, okay, you know, are they higher chance of conversion dropping them on the homepage or let's drive traffic to the product page itself or maybe let's build a very specialty marketing page that has some really cool features and functionality and videos and how is the traffic going to react when we go there and that was the beauty of shopify that we could pair that with our google analytics and really start understanding not only how many people were coming but what was the behavior of those people and then really start to optimize everything we were doing from a content marketing perspective to make sure that we put ourselves in the best position to convert an order. Got it. Did you find that there were any any direct to consumer benefits from having spent so many you know those couple of years in retail and, and still having a retail presence? I would say one of the best things is that we did have brand awareness. So we weren't coming out of nowhere. You know, we would have that traffic come to the website. We were also able to leverage some of those logos. So kind of the as seen in Apple stores, Best Buy stores. So when that traffic comes to our website, rather than having uncertainty around, eh, who is this company? I don't know much about them. Immediately, you would drop those walls from the consumer perspective and kind of build a rapport and a little bit of brand credibility. It would validate us. So right on the homepage and on a lot of our email marketing and our advertising, we would leverage some of those retail logos. And so ultimately, you know, if Best Buy is carrying this product and it's in Apple stores, everybody knows how picky Apple is about their partners. It must be legit. And so that really allowed us uh, to generate a lot of conversion. And essentially looking back at it, probably that was the most valuable thing out of those two partnerships was not the revenue that those retailers brought us, but the credibility that they brought us for us to leverage that in our direct to consumer advertising channels. Makes sense. So when it came to driving traffic with Facebook and Instagram advertising, what were you doing? What, what seemed to be working for you guys in, in, in terms of the kind of ads that you were placing that led to, to uh, purchases? You know, we were fortunate that we're not selling kind of basic commodities that are tough to advertise. Our product was geared towards people who are trying to create better content. And we had hundreds of thousands of users users out there who were creating content beyond our wildest dreams. And so we were leveraging a lot of that content and really just showcasing what was possible with this light. Uh, Sometimes it would be before and after type things where catchy videos, anything in that five to 10 second video mark, and then a number of just really high end creative imagery. So our customers at the time that we were trying to attract were photographers, videographers. So they respond well to high-end photography because that's what they do and that's what they enjoy. So just really putting some budget behind those with some strategic messaging around the benefit that we could provide them was uh, was what led to a lot of our early, early traffic, particularly at that point, because in 2018, that really was the business. We were going towards the content creator uh, crowd. 
Got it. Now you mentioned that once they land on the site, one of the benefits of having your own website is being able to see the the data on the behavior of your of your visitors, of your prospective customers. What were some things that you were learning from this data about your customers? That was truly where we started to understand the business and what was succeeding and what was not. So really one of the things that we were focused on, uh, you know, we incur like most business would offer free shipping. So there's a major difference between a $60 order coming in and a $100 order. Uh, you know, both are going to ship for free. That shipping cost is fixed. So average order value was a major, major focus for us. And Shopify makes it so easy to understand that. So what we started doing was really watching which products were sold together. You know, it might be this light with this mounting stand and this light accessory. And so by understanding, wow, there's kind of almost a two to one or a one to one ratio on a lot of these products, let's start building some soft bundles and start creating some higher average order value products. And maybe all those three products together add up to 130. Let's offer that at 119 and do a little incentive at this higher dollar value. And so our average order value over those following months skyrocketed when we started to understand what was being bought together and delivering kind of one-stop bundles to the customer. And really it got us from anywhere in that $70 mark, which really was $70 to $80, the price of a light, to pushing our average order value over $100, which opened up a lot of business because those particular accessories that's where a lot of the higher profit margin was. So that would help us cover shipping costs and generate cash flow to then reinvest in the business and build more product. That's awesome. So th- these bundles, how do you, how are those like kind of advertised? Are they advertised more? How do you get position them on your website between, uh, you know, alongside the, the kind of one-off products? So we build kind of specific collections and, you know, one of our easiest transitions that changed the game Ultimately, we kind of realized that our customers and probably most customers, they really come to your brand and they they might enjoy your product or your category, but they look to you as a brand for guidance. So, you know, hey, I'm going to show, show up on LoomCube's website. What products are the best ones for me? And they're curious because they know a little bit about light. And so what we did was create uh, a couple new collections. And one of which is, you know, all time the highest is we created the best selling collection. So best selling products. So that became the highest trafficked collection. Everybody's curious about, okay, I'm at this new brand. What are the best selling products that kind of gives that market validation where if either the brand or every one of their customers is buying these ones, I guess that must be the one for me. And so by creating both the best selling category uh, or collection, and then putting some of those strategic bundles in that collection, we really built the path of trust for our customers to come to our website, visit the best sellers, then see not only were those bundles some of the best selling products, but also a lot of times we offered them at kind of that slight bundle discount, save $10 by buying these two or three products together. So it became also a deal and a benefit for the end customer. And so building that path, we found a very successful strategy for the business. Yeah, I think there's something to be said there about how a lot of times when your customers are coming, that they're not super informed and that they're not super technical when it comes to to the, to the product offerings out there. They just kind of want a solution, right, to their problems. And I exactly. think, yeah, the best seller is a great way to alleviate their, that kind of anxiety around purchasing. If, if a bunch of people bought it, you know, I'm seeing right here in over 100 reviews for some of your best sellers, like that's enough for me to make a purchase a lot of times. Have there been other, other um, testing that you've done on the website besides the best sellers? 
that the, the what kind of experiments have you run that have led to either you know more time spent on the site or more conversions? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a huge part of our paid media strategy ends up in the retargeting funnels. And, uh, you know, we use a platform called Klaviyo for our email marketing. And so we've done a few strategies around obviously tons and tons of testing around driving traffic to different parts of the website, uh, product detail pages, home pages. But we actually started this past year, which has been quite interesting as we got really into that video conference realm and the lighting for video conference and work from home customers, which obviously a major pain point for hundreds of millions of people. And we provided a really effective and affordable solution. Uh, we also, you know, we built a line of products. And so it wasn't one offering for that market. It was a couple different offerings at different price points, kind of a good, better, best model. And so although those products were in a collection and you could then shop each product individually, we built what internally we call marketing landing pages. So kind of a hidden page that you can't navigate from the site that only advertising traffic would drive to. And then we would, through that page, add photos, videos, and really tell the story of that line. So although the website and the collection was much cleaner with, you know, just the product shots, this marketing landing page had a lot of the before and after shots and the lifestyle photos and some embedded, embedded videos. And we actually found when sending traffic to a marketing landing page and that had kind of a number through the whole page scrolling down, it probably had about seven or eight different add to cart buttons versus just the product detail page. Uh, although conversion rates at the end of the day were fairly equal, we had 300% increase on the add to carts on the marketing landing pages versus just the product detail pages. And so although the conversion rate was similar, what that allowed us to do kind of a, a flow for us in our email marketing is the cart abandonment flow. So basically delivering those emails to people who check, put it in the cart and didn't check out. And so we had 300% increase on those marketing landing pages. So we were able to put so many more people in that post-purchase flow or that a uh, cart abandonment flow. And then that flow is one of our highest converting flows in our email marketing flows. And so without that marketing landing page, you know, one-to-one, -one, we would have had thousands of people left out of that flow. And so it allowed us an opportunity to put them in there and then continue to message them with some upsell offerings. And that was a game changer for us and is a core part of our strategy now. Yeah, once you see the kind of the the the, the value and benefit of having these marketing landing pages, what what stops you from just making that the product details page? Is there is there a reason why you want to show certain kind of information on a product details page and certain kind of information on a a marketing landing page? Uh, you know, for us, on usually on those marketing landing pages, through that scroll, we would actually show the entire series of products. So right in the first fold, you might see kind of the $70 offering and a little before and after some details. And as you scroll down, you see then the $100 offering and then the $150 offering. So it's all on one page versus kind of more of the focused traffic going into the product detail page. And, you know, oddly, because the conversion rates are, were nearly identical, we definitely found that the traditional experience of somebody landing on a product detail page, which then they might be able to shop around on the collections, a more traditional shopping experience. You know, we believe that there's certainly a healthy volume of customers out there who maybe not prefer, but are most comfortable shopping in that experience. 
versus landing on a page that is splashed with a lot of creative. Uh, so I think you know, in the market out there, there's certainly a place for both because customers do behave differently. And that's one of the things we want to do is we don't want to completely turn off or cut off any specific customer base from an e-com standpoint. We want to make sure that we have a platform for everybody. Yeah, I think that that's a good point about how the context matters, that if someone clicks on a product details page, they probably expect it to look similar to other other uh, retailers, other other websites they've, they've gone to. Right. So you mentioned uh, Klaviyo is the the email marketing software that you use. Are there any other apps or tools that you recommend that, that you guys use to run the website or the business? Yeah, we have uh, you know pretty strong tech stack. Just on the Shopify side, a couple things. You know, obviously we uh, we leverage review platforms very strongly. We feel that helps a lot in terms of that kind of credibility, brand credibility, along with PR to make sure that okay, this is a product that has four, five hundred, five star reviews on the website. You know, for a customer willing to take a hundred dollars out of their hard earned cash, makes it a little bit easier and a little bit more comfortable. Uh, but one of the things that for us, you know, may not be applicable to all brands. But the actual upsell flow, so in-cart upsell in the last 18 months, I'd say, has been one of the most effective strategies for us. Uh, you know, we, of course, want somebody to come and buy that large bundle. But without question, the high majority of customers are coming and they're starting with that low barrier to entry, that one product that's kind of your hero product that they might look at it and say, I'm not quite sure I need to go big on this one. Let me start with just the $70 offering. And then when they put that in the cart, there's a couple of in-cart upsell apps that allow you to really map out what upsell accessory or product is going to be sold in that cart with that particular hero product. And so for us, we saw six-figure changes in our e-commerce revenue in the first few months just through those accessory upsells. So we started seeing anywhere between 23 and 35% conversion in the cart, where as that person had made a decision, I'm only going to spend $70, you know, 30% give or take of those people would then, as they were about to check out, decide, oh, you know what, I'll throw that $20 accessory or that $30 accessory in there, bringing that AOV to $100. And so when we looked at that, I mean, that was a game changer for us because that helped us cover shipping costs, add more revenue to the pocket. And then ultimately, we were very strategic in which offerings would go with which products. So by all means, it was a high benefit to the customer. You know, we thought if you're buying this product, the experience is going to be much better if one of these two or three accessories are bought along with it. And so it's a benefit to the end customer as well. And what's nice in those is that let's say that on your product page, that accessory might sell for $29.95 because it's in that in-card upsell, you can customize that price point to only show a discount in the cart. And so, you know, as they're checking out, say, Hey, buy this little desktop light stand and you can get it for $10 off by adding it into your cart now and sell it for $19. So big benefit to the customer, Big benefit to the brand because AOV is increasing, revenue is increasing, and it was just a win all around. And that is something we have mapped out on nearly 100% of our products now and uh, and continues to drive a lot of revenue for the business. Yeah, I think the, the key lesson here is that sometimes the focus should not be on simply getting new customers, but how do you actually increase the, the car value of people that already have their credit card out in a way that will not just – in a way that will – 
also improve the experience with you, right? You're recommending products that, that you know are good bundles together that other people have seen success with and all the while giving them a discount while doing it. So I think that that's a, exactly. a, a great lesson in there. So loomcube.com, L-U-M-E-C-U-B-E.com is a website. And I'll leave you this last question. What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you or you as a business have learned in the past year that you want to make use of moving forward? Be open to pivoting and adapting to the market. Uh, you know, a year ago, our business was high majority going to the content creator crowd. And of course, COVID happened. A new problem came in the world. We did not have major product line or anticipation around having a line of video conference lighting. And so the entire business shifted. We saw you know, our Best Buy business, our Apple business fall off a cliff and knew that we had to pivot and we couldn't quite rely on the single product line. So we looked in the marketplace, where was a pain point and where could light our core commodity be a solution? And we thought video conference was the, the place. And so within about three weeks, we you know stepped on the gas with our content creative team. We built a lot of content around showcasing the value of video conference lighting. We reskinned the website. We started driving a much different audience to the website. You know, it's more of this business work from home customer versus our core creative customer. And ultimately that allowed the business not only to survive, but to thrive and grow over 400% in the last 12 months by pivoting, you know, and, and at the beginning of the year had no plans for that. And just by the nature of the market, seeing an opportunity and seeing a, a chance of survival to make that pivot quickly, which is, I think, the biggest benefit around being a startup or a small company. You can pivot very quickly. Being open to that is something that really we learned a lot this year and really opening up to, to those mass markets. Because had we written a line in the sand that said we only want to be a GoPro accessory company or a content creator company, we would you know, I don't know where we'd be today, but it would be far, far behind where we currently are. And we had to be open to the idea of rebranding, reestablishing and using our product in new ways. And that ultimately allowed us to, to succeed. So we keep that very close to our heart this year as we watch what's happening in the world, what's happening in different markets that we're moving towards, like gaming and streaming. And of course, video conferencing and content creative and TikTok. You know, what are these new things that are happening and do could this brand and this product line have a place in that market? And if so, pivot quickly, test it out, try it out, and then make your decisions. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and story, Riley. Absolutely, Felix. Happy to be here and thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.